listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined with a special guest from uh, quite a long ways away. He's joining us from the Kingdom of Bahrain. Today's guest is active duty military. He is he is in the Navy, and he's been investing since 2015. He's the founder of realfocus.org or Real Focus Capital Investments. Really excited to interview him and, and get to look, know a little bit more about his story. Ramsey Blankenship, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Sterling. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Ramsey, can you tell us a little bit about your background, kind of, you know, the, the start of the story and what led you into real estate? Yeah, man. So I've, uh, I started out in California and really it's the San Diego, California, where if you've ever been out there, man, you can barely even afford to buy a mailbox for, sure. you know, half a million dollars. It, it's extremely expensive. And I was uh, in my young 20s, but in the military, we're able to use the VA loan where we don't have to put any money down. And I was able to buy a house in a little town down there, a little beach town called Imperial Beach, California. And at the time, I was just buying a house just for me and my family. I wasn't looking at it as an investment or anything along those lines. But I got orders, I uh, got transferred to Panama City Beach, Florida. And this was in 2014. And so when I sold my house out in Imperial Beach, the market had appreciated and me and my wife walked away with $40,000. And I was like, we're rich. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was young 20s. I'd never seen $40,000 before in my life. And uh, because it was our, our primary household, we didn't have to pay capital gains tax on it. Like, I had to keep all that money. Yeah. And we went down to Panama City, Florida, and literally, like, the market down there was a third of what it cost in California. And I'd always wanted to invest in real estate. I had read the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books. I'd read all of the real estate investing books and uh, just never really took action on an investment. But when I was growing up, my dad had told me about the idea of, you know, like a duplex and living in one side and renting out the other half. And I told my wife, Hope, I was like, I was like, hey, babe, I think we got to do this. We need to like buy a duplex, live in one side, rent the other side, our mortgage will be paid and we'll just live rent free. And she was like, yeah, how about no? <laughs> how about, how about <laughs> that, right. And I was like, well, what do you mean? It's like, it, it crushed my whole plan. And she was like, Ramsey, we're growing a family. Like we have two dogs. Like we, I don't want every time that we have an argument or every time we have a movie or loud music playing that, that we have to worry about disturbing our neighbors because we share a wall. And so I was pretty crushed, but I started to think about it. And um, what I did not hear from her, I, I heard no, but what I actually heard was yes, comma, but right. And so I started to think about that. Like, okay, She's willing to do it, but she doesn't want to share a wall, right? And that was kind of like my, okay, I, I, we can probably compromise there as long as I find a place where we're not sharing a wall. So I went out and found a place that was a three-bedroom, two-bath house, garage, fence for the dogs, yard for the kids, and everything that we wanted. But on the backside along the alley, there was two little 500-square-foot cottages, that were completely detached and had their own alley access. Like you couldn't even tell that they were part of the property. So I went and brought my wife to go look at the house, just the house. I didn't even tell her about it. Right, right. <laughs> set, set her up. <laughs> and I was like, what do you think about this? And she's like, 
it's great. You could live here. She said, yeah, we're only be here for three years. It's fine. I says, okay, let's buy it. And she's all right, fine. And so that whenever we closed and got the keys, I took her to the oh, back. Wow. You, you, yeah. you, you carried it all the way through. Wow. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, <laughs> and I went and I showed her, I said, uh, it was right before we, we were going to close this, do the signing do- documents as the final walkthrough. I said, Hey, I want to show you something. Went to the kitchen, had this big window that looked over the backyard and you could see the roofs of those cottages from there. And I says, what do you think about the neighbors? And she goes, they look like neighbors. I says, okay, so you don't think that those neighbors live too close or anything like that. And she's like, Ramsey, we're going to have neighbors. And I'm like, deal. (laughs) (laughs) I says, those two cottages on the back come with the house. And she's like, what? And so she wasn't mad, but she was just like, why am I just figuring this out? And I said, our mortgage is going to be $1,200. Each one of those cottages rents for $600 and $650. We're going to get paid $50 to live in this house. And whenever we realized that, because we get a housing allowance, it was like $1,500. And we were literally taking that $1,500 a month and putting it in our pocket. And before that, man, like uh, I told you, I read a lot of the books, right? I'd read the Dave Ramsey book. I had read the Automatic Millionaire book and everything that I read uh, from Dave Ramsey was like, take all your money out of your bank account, put it in these envelopes, divvy it out like every penny needs to be accounted for. And the Automatic Millionaire one was like, don't drink, don't dip, don't smoke, like don't go to the movies so much, don't eat at nice restaurants, save, 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 save. And I remember before we were in Panama City uh, in California. I'd taken all my money out of my bank account, gave it straight to my wife. She takes it and she divides it up into these envelopes, man. This much for mortgage, this much for car payment, this much for vacation, this much for Christmas. And I remember handing her, you know, a couple thousand dollars. And then she gives me my two envelopes. One said gas, one said entertainment. And I was like, heck yeah, dude. So I opened up my gas one and had a hundred dollars in there. I opened up my entertainment one and had $75 in there. (laughs) And I thought to myself, this sucks. Like, <laughs> I just handed you thousands, and then I get back $75 for the month for my entertainment. $75 is not enough to entertain me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I like doing fun stuff, you know? And I, I like, at the time, I was dipping. I was drinking Red Bulls. I like going out and hanging out with my friends. And we were literally cutting out everything that we loved so that we could say we ended up saving about $500 a month. And by making one decision to live in a house that had neighbors, but those neighbors happened to pay us rent, we started saving again. times that much. I say, yeah, dude, I'm going out buying Red Bulls right now. <laughs> so before, before you get too much further in the story, I found two areas where I very closely identify with you. So I discovered the house hack that you're talking about living in one side, like right after I closed on our first house. And I always said if I would have figured it out two months earlier, I would have been golden. But there was no way my wife was going to let me move her out of that big fancy house we just bought into one side of a duplex. Yeah, can't go backwards. (laughs) Yeah, the other part that I identify with is when I first started getting into personal finance, I started reading all those books too. And the first one I read was a Dave Ramsey book. And I went to my wife, I was like, look, we're never going to have any credit cards, no debt. We're going to have everything cash paid off early. And then like a week later, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. I was like, scratch that. We're going to get as much debt as we can. <laughs> she was just like, you're crazy. Yeah. 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 
I mean, there's definitely good takeaways from every book, but it's not for everybody. I'm a firm believer in the rich dad, poor dad style where you scoop up assets. I don't want to live like no one else so I can live like no one else. Like what I like from Dave Ramsey, one of his quotes that I, I really like is you don't need to buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. I always yeah. thought that was, that was a good one. I agree with that. And I, I think for, for those listeners out there, I think the Dave Ramsey method, I, his specialty is getting you out of debt, like getting you back to baseline and then switch over to the investing side and look out uh, or, or read more of the Robert Kiyosaki style stuff, because that kind of teach you how to build wealth instead of get out of debt. So I do right. think that there's a place for each one of those books. I happen to read them kind of, I guess, in the right order, because I hadn't started investing, but I, I wasn't really in debt whenever I was reading the Dave Ramsey stuff. I was just trying to save. And I've found that I'm allowed to save way more just simply by making good decisions and buying assets and having money coming in rather than sure. dealing with the money I got and not spending it as much. So, but yeah, so I did the house hack and did that for a little while. We lived there for three years, but while I was there, I was like I said, I was able to save up about 1500 bucks a month. And 10 months later, I had $15,000 saved up. And I went and bought my first actual investment property, one that I didn't live in. And it was just this little bitty duplex, bad part of town, not so great part of town, I should say. And I bought that thing for $40,000. Sounds like a bad part of town. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it wasn't the best part of town, but... <laughs> You know, those people, they, they need a place to live too. And to this day, that little duplex, I just sold it, was the best investment. I, I bought it for, it was I, I put $12,500 down. It rented for $450 per side per month. I had a, had a $300 mortgage and was bringing in $900 a month. So I got my money back from that thing in two years. And then I just sold it in 2020, I sold it for $95,000. So I bought it for 40. Oh, wow. I ended up, I don't know what the word for seven, but I ended up seven Xing my money uh, off just a little $40,000 duplex. And that was a very good like entry level investment for me to start. But from there, I moved up. I started buying small apartment complexes. I bought you know a seven unit apartment complex that I did the Burr strategy on. So the, the buy, renovate, retenant, refinance, repeat. And that worked out. That worked out awesomely. I put fifty thousand dollars in cash in it to buy it. I put fifty thousand dollars to renovate it. And on my thirtieth uh, birthday, I cashed out and got my hundred thousand dollars back. So I own that thing pretty much. It took me two years to do that. So I got my money back in two years, and that's kind of my that's my threshold on most of my investments. And uh, from there, just now, it's like okay, I've started investing with a house hack. Then I got a little bit more comfortable being a landlord. So I bought an investment property I didn't live in, and that got me a little bit more comfortable. Now I'm in multifamily. So I started going commercial multifamily. So each time I was getting a little bit more and more comfortable, like uh, getting outside sure. my comfort zone. And then, uh, so, okay, now I'm going to start investing out of state, right, with friends. Because the Panama City's a pretty small market. There's The inventory was starting to dry up. So I partnered with people and started investing in Louisiana. Where in Louisiana? It's funny you asked, it's Shreveport, Louisiana, and that's kind of where my investing shifted gears because I was buying small, small multifamily apartment complex, like 10 units and below. Started doing with partners and I did my taxes a couple years ago and in Panama City, 
things were going great. Right now, they're all under property managers. I was managing myself. Now, ever since I moved out to, to California, I can't do that anymore. So I get my report, close out my, my, I think it was like 2018 taxes, and Panama City was crushing it. Then I do my Shreveport, Louisiana taxes, and it made, I think, $200 on nine units throughout the year. And I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, what's going on here like this? <laughs> so I call my partner and I said, what's going on, man? And he's telling me, he's like, look, everything looks like it would make money because what we get in rents, if we're fully occupied, we would make a lot of money off of this. But delinquencies, vacancies, you know, all of this stuff is crushing us. Welcome to Louisiana. So, yeah, <laughs> right. And I said, uh, I said, okay, well, well, why do you think that is, right? And up until this point, I had had no clue about like market selection. Just kind of thought what worked in Panama City. I'm a copy and paste that in Shreveport, Louisiana. I couldn't have been more wrong, but I'm glad it happened because now I've learned to evaluate. I've learned very well to evaluate a market from like a macro perspective and dial it all the way down to the neighborhood, the street, right? But it's funny because we. Whenever, like literally the day after I had this conversation with Brandon, I asked him, like, what do you think it is about Shreveport? Started listening to some podcasts and stuff about market selection. And uh, I don't know if you know Neil Bawa. They call him. Oh, the, yeah. Bad uh, scientist of multifamily. I met Neil last year. We interviewed him on the show. I, I use his little like free giveaway spreadsheet every time we look at a market. You know, we we initially did it when we were selecting markets. And now if we get like a one-off property in a market that we're not familiar with, the first thing I do is go run it through his little deal. It's very good. Yeah. It's uh, he calls them. And in fact, our name real focus, he calls them his real focuses. And he told us whenever we went to his training, he's like, you guys need to use that. Right. So we've taken a little bit further than what he's able to put out in like, you know, a 50 minute podcast, but on that podcast, that what, what I should say is that the interviewer asked him for some gold nuggets. And he goes, you want some gold nuggets? I'll give you some gold nuggets. He says, if you're listening to this and you're investing in Shreveport, Louisiana, you need to sell now. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Dang it, man. And uh, he started talking about why, like when it, when it comes down to it, healthy things grow and unhealthy things die, right? And that goes just as well for a city. And whenever we're talking about a city, if if it's a healthy city, then people are moving to it so they can get better jobs, so that they can buy nicer houses in better neighborhoods. And when you break it down to market selection, that goes over population growth. It goes over median household income. It goes over median household value. It goes over crime rate. It goes over job growth. So if you just remember, whenever you're talking about where should I invest, if that city's got people moving to it, the reason they're moving there is to get better jobs so they can make more money, buy a nicer house and a safer neighborhood. And if that is happening, then that market is generally healthy. Right. So, yeah. So I, I don't know if I'd mentioned this earlier, if you caught it, but I, I'm from Louisiana. I live in Louisiana okay. and I have 44 units down here in South Louisiana and there, there's specific areas that, that I know very well, you know, but when I'm looking for larger multifamily, I don't ever want to buy in Louisiana, anywhere in Louisiana. And a lot of people ask me like, well, why don't, you know, people here, I'm in apartment buildings and they're like, oh, well, have you looked at the one in New Orleans? I'm like, no. 
And <laughs> they're like, well, why? And I said, well, you know, think about all the reasons that would make a market or an area like poised for long-term growth. You've got job diversity, like our entire state is run off of oil <laughs> and like they want to get rid of oil. So like, think about how, how that's going to work. You think about population growth, people are leaving. You think about crime, like I think the only people out there worse than crime are Mississippi. You look at low education, you look at high poverty. I mean, all the different like key economic indicators that would make for long-term growth are not here. So that's why we <laughs> we look in other areas. I grew up in Louisiana. We used to have a saying that Mississippi, keeping Louisiana last out of last place and everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have any listeners in Mississippi, they probably just turned me off. But <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty. I grew up in Lake Charles, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm in Baton Rouge. Okay, nice. Yeah. So where did we go from there, right? So we started learning how to actually evaluate markets. And uh, man, I tell you that that has been it's challenging because whenever, like, I think whenever I was just getting out, just getting started, I was naive enough to not know better on what markets to search. And it got me started. And I've talked to plenty of people and I do agree with them that you can make money in a bad market, just like you can make money in a good market. And like in Shreveport, I think what they're probably doing is it's the money's probably in single family homes, fix and flip, stuff like that. Because right across sure. the bridge in Bossier, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but when you're, t- like you said, when you start talking about large multifamily apartment complexes, you are putting a dent in the inventory when you buy two or 300 uh, apartment units, especially in a market that's very small, like a tertiary market. Mm -hmm. So it is a much larger risk in the multifamily world when you buy a multifamily property in a smaller market than it is when you buy something like Atlanta, right? So that's for us, whenever we're looking at larger multifamily apartment complexes, we're typically trying to look at, and like your NFL cities, right? Bigger cities, the outskirts of those because there's just enough yeah. population to afford being able sure. to do so. We just bought in uh, Noonan right outside of Atlanta. Okay, nice. Congratulations. Well, how, how many units was that? It's uh, 53. Okay, good. Good. So yeah, we, lo- we love that market for sure. Yeah, Atlanta's hot right now. Where else are you guys looking at? So we started in Huntsville, Alabama and Jacksonville, Florida. And then we weren't really looking at Atlanta just because of the competition and the, the deal kind of came across our desk and, and we started to, you know, look more at it and go, of course, we love this area. But, you know, after doing the deal in there and really digging into the, you know, all the, the demographics that go into it, we like fell in love with the area. So now we're like scouring the outskirts of Atlanta. We're still maintaining a focus on Jacksonville and Huntsville. We were looking at, at Louisville for a while, like a couple different areas in Kentucky. We kind of dropped the ball on that just because we wanted to narrow our focus more and not get. And so we, we like to keep like kind of three markets top of mind. And it was Louisville, Huntsville and Jacksonville. But now that we've kind of shifted to Atlanta, we kind of dropped Louisville to focus on the other three. Yeah, we've been looking uh, along the I-10 corridor from pretty much Mobile to Jacksonville. And Jacksonville is okay. definitely the largest city. And right now, inventory has been pretty low. I think that's everywhere. You know, <laughs> yes, pretty much everywhere. So uh, we started open up to a couple of different markets. And really what we've been getting, man, is uh, 
you want to focus on what you know, but if you go to a broker and say, I'm looking for a value add play in a B and C apartment class with a hundred plus units, you and everybody else. Yeah. Get in line, man. So um, (laughs) unless you've got a substantial amount of capital raised, then you're not going to be able to play as quickly as uh, some of the larger syndicators out there, especially they're, they're starting to put money down hard side on scene. And, 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 for your listeners who don't know what that means, that means that they're putting up a deposit that's non-refundable before they even get to view the apartment complex. And that is a massive risk, but it's one that I think right now a lot of people are starting to get a bit desperate because of the inventory. Everybody's just sitting on it to see what happens with COVID. Well, we're at the 12-month mark now with COVID. I think now that everybody's kind of got a T12 under their belt, they'll start to be able to see that the real estate market hasn't been hit like we thought it was going to be. And I think sales are going to pick up within the next, I don't know, hopefully a couple of months, especially as the summer approaches. So we'll see what that looks like. But back to what I was talking about, stray voltage, we get a lot of stuff like, okay, cool. Everybody wants to value add BC 100 plus unit apartment complex. Here's something similar, but it's student housing. Or here's something similar, but it's Section 8. Or here's a uh, here's a hotel that's got a hundred something units in it. That you, mm-hmm. could, you could you could uh, do a heavy lift and do the conversions on. So we are getting those, and as tempting as they may be, it's not within our criteria. So we're holding we're holding strong and, and trying to make sure that we we pick out you know the right unit that and, and we're willing awesome. to wait to get those right numbers for our investors. So I, I definitely love that, and I feel the same way. I get nervous for the the investors in the market, I mean, the limited investors, the syndicators, that everyone seems so desperate for a deal. They're trying to fit a square peg in a circle hole, in my opinion. And it's scary what's going on out there. So I love to hear other people saying, no, we're just, we're just not going to do a deal. We're just going to stick to our criteria and hold it off and, you know, wait it out. Yeah. I mean, these are five-year commitments. I don't want to make a short-term decision that we have to, we have to weather for much longer I'm going to be in a five-year relationship with investors that are unhappy, or I could wait and get into a relationship for five years with people that are happy. I'll take that any day. And I do believe that there are people out there making decisions so that they can employ money to keep their investors fed. And if you're making those decisions, then you are making the decision to, to potentially overpromise and underdeliver, and you'll lose sure. those investors, in my opinion. Or, or even scarier to live off of their next acquisition fee. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, yeah, so we're not going to do that. Our team is is constant. We are still getting deals. We are constantly underwriting uh, properties, but the ask right now from the sellers—it's a seller's market. They know that there's a lot more people willing to buy than there are willing to sell right now, and that's okay. That's okay. I mean, like I said, I'm I'm active duty military, so it, this is not. I'm not waiting for my next next acquisition fee to put food on the table. So I got time to wait it out. I say that all the time. So a lot of the full-time syndicators will go around saying, oh, you should only you know, work with people that are full-time syndicators. And I'm like, well, I disagree because I have a really nice salary at my day job that allows me to be patient and wait for like solid deals to come along where I'm not like hopping from acquisition fee to acquisition fee, incentivizing me to make an impulsive decision. You know what I'm saying? So I love the idea of, you know, having a strong income outside of, of this type of business. It is tough to be 
a full, like to be full-time, especially full-time military. Like I said, I'm in Bahrain right now. So I've been deployed for six months and I'm eight hours ahead of East Coast time, I believe. So I have a very small window of communication to be able to reach back and talk to investors, brokers, stuff like that. And that's why, for me, that's why it's important that I have a team. I got a couple guys that are back stateside. One of them is military, but the other one, he's a full-time, he works remotely. So he has the time to be able to do a lot of the groundwork. But for me, if I didn't have partners like my property manager in Panama City, my real estate agents, the brokers that I know that send me deals, if I didn't have the two guys that I partnered up with, I would still be able to invest in real estate, but it would be on a much smaller scale than I'm able to do right now. And especially there's no, there's just no way that you can be active duty military and manage everything yourself, especially if you're deployable. So you have to trust people and you have to partner up with good uh, working professionals to be able to, to scale at any capacity. Right. So yeah, it's a team sport. It really is. I mean, I just think about all the different things that my partners do. And if I were to try to juggle all of those, like you said, it would, it wouldn't be nearly as scalable, even like, you know, looking in the rear view mirror, when a year ago, when I was managing all my own properties down here, if I wouldn't have offloaded that, I would have never gotten to the larger multifamily projects because it just, it's just not scalable. You can't do everything yourself, you know, and I pay a lot to have those properties managed and that's why I held on for so long, but being able to delegate that out frees up so much more time. And I mean, just being able to leverage whether it's, you know, an employment type of situation, like with the property manager or, or, you know, the partnership, being able to leverage other people's times and resources is really the only way that you're going to scale the way oh. that I think we want to. Absolutely, man. When I, when I, when I had that seven unit apartment complex down in Panama city, I renovated the whole thing myself, or at least <laughs> I was, I started it and I was, I have a, a, a baseball tournament business outside of the Navy as well. Right. And we had hosted baseball tournaments on the weekends from, you know, Mobile, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, all, it was all in the Southeast. And I was working at the U S Navy dive school from Monday to Friday. I would get off work Monday to Friday. And I, before I would go home, I'd go put three or four hours in just doing simple renovations over at the apartment complex. And then on Friday morning, I would pack my truck and pull my trailer into the dive school. And when I get off work, I would drive over to Mobile or over to Baton Rouge, which is like four or five hour drive, either one, run a tournament on Friday night, Saturday night, and the championship game would be on Sunday. I would drive it all the way back and I would start work again on Monday. I did that for five weeks, right? And I felt like I was being successful. I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Until one day, whenever I sent off the final email to a, my real estate agent and I stood up and I couldn't see like my everything went black and my ears started ringing and I hit my knees. The only thing that I could do was yell for my wife. And this is at like midnight. And so she runs into the room and sees me. I'm, look, I, when I tell you when she tells the story, what she saw was a broken man. Right. What had happened was I was I was so overworked and so stressed. And then I had so much tension from staring at a computer screen that the nerves in my neck were trying to touch the nerves in my eyes. And it put pressure on my brain and gave me what's called a tension headache. And I didn't know this. I was, I was dead. Like it, it literally hurt to, to be like it sound hurt, light hurt, everything hurt. 
Wow. And I finally went to the dive school because uh, I went to the emergency room and they they done a spinal tap. They did all kinds of stuff. Could not figure out what was wrong with me. And my uh, my diving medical officer was like, hey, have you been like working extra hours weekly? I was like, yeah. He says, have you been <laughs> hydrating properly? I was like, no, I've been out in the sun a lot running these tournaments and doing all this work. And he goes, have you been staring at a computer screen a lot? I was like, Yeah. And he goes, you got a tension headache. And he, that dude put me in like a, like a, a full Nelson and held me there for like five <laughs> minutes and the headache went away. Right. <laughs> I, I gave that guy the biggest hug. I've never hugged a man so hard in my life. I was like, Oh my God, I don't know how you did this. But the point of the story is, is that I had to really start looking at how I was spending my time. Right. I was on in the military, we have what's called shore duty. So this is the three years that I'm not deployable where we get off work we do we work a nine to five job and we don't deploy we get weekends off it's not normally like that right so that was my time to be spending with my family but instead I was spending my entire summer where my kids finally got off of school that's the same time baseball tournaments start getting thrown and I was every when in the afternoons instead of going home spending time with my kids I was going and, and renovating an apartment complex so when I tell the story, I usually tell, oh, yeah, man, I, I did the renovations myself. It's everything sounds smooth. But the reality of it is I, I about killed my dang self. And so I went and hired a property manager. I started hiring contractors. The best thing that happened to me was I moved away from Panama City. So now I can't do that stuff. So I had to learn how to hire people remotely or to how to trust people with my assets. And it has been it has been an eye opener now because I don't have to do that stuff. There are people who are willing to do drywall for 10 bucks an hour. I was doing drywall. <laughs> I hate drywall. I hate painting. I hate mowing grass. I was doing everything that I hated because I thought that that's what I had to do to be successful. When in reality, being successful is not having to do stuff you don't want to do. Like that is literally what it means to be successful. <laughs> so or at least in my eyes. So now. I've learned a huge lesson from doing that. And I'm, and I'm as much as that headache sucked, I'm thankful that it happened because it was a wake up call. You know what I mean? Like a medical wake up call. I literally gave myself a headache because I was being so stupid about it. (laughs) So what advice do you have for somebody else that's just getting started? Do a house hack. I really do. If you can. And now there are many forms. I think I, I firmly believe that doing a house hack is the best way to get into it. Right. Yeah. If you're not if you're not like a big action taker or you like your comfort zone, do a house hack. And there's many forms of that. It can be as simple as renting out one of your rooms on Airbnb or VRBO in some sort of short term capacity. My my brother bought a house when we were in college and we all lived there and paid him rent and it covered his mortgage. Nobody knew what a house hack was back in yeah. 2006. But I mean, that's what he was doing. He didn't pay his own mortgage, you know. Yeah. I mean, really, at the end of the day, you're getting paid for being for your responsibilities. Right. Mm-hmm. And and what you guys were paying for is, is somebody who signed their name on that lease. You know, at the end right. of the day, he was the one responsible for that place. So he got compensated for it. Well, house hack is essentially the same thing. It, it, actually, owning real estate is the same thing, because and that's why we should get compensated, because we are responsible for the loan. We're responsible for the repairs. We're responsible for all that stuff. And if you uh, are about to buy your first house, open your eyes a little bit to what, what, like, I know house hack is a pretty term, but it doesn't have to be a duplex where you share a wall. It can be the house you want with uh, extra bedrooms you're not going to use. It could be in the back. You can have like a, like a a mother-in-law suite. 
There's even ways to rent out your pool. There's apps to rent out your pool, right? Like it, how awesome would it be to buy a house with a pool and pay a little extra money and rent it out whenever you're not using it and make money from it? I'm not recommending it, but I'm just saying there's ways to do that. And if you get creative and you start to understand what opportunity looks like, I could have very easily looked at that first house and said, I don't want to be a landlord, right? But being a landlord, all that consisted of was me telling two people behind me where to drop checks off, right? Like I can handle that, right? And then uh, once I did that, I got a bit more comfortable and kept going. So I really do think if you want to start, start out with some sort of house hack, whether you're renting space in your uh, garage, you're, you're renting out bedrooms, or you actually buy a quadplex and rent out three different units and you live in one and you get paid to live there. That'll get your foot in the door and teach you enough skills and give you enough understanding to where from there you can pick your poison on what else you want to do in real estate. Awesome. So I want to hop over to our radio round and help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. What's your favorite book? Okay, so I, it's obviously the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, sure. Um, but I think I think everybody's pretty much tracking on what that is. Um, yep. So I have. Can I give you two? Other yeah, no, 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 no. You know, I actually, whenever people say Rich Dad Poor Dad, I make them give me another one. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got one with me right now that I'm reading called Raising Capital for Real Estate. Uh, it's by Hunter Thompson, and it is a very good way at looking how to raise capital. I'm about to the end of it, and it's got plenty of action items, things that I've been working on, things that have actually helped out in us funding our deals. But what I loved about that book, it was my my like aha takeaway from it was when he was telling the story about how he he went to go raise all the capital and he invited all these successful people he knew and not one of them wrote a check. And he figured out that there's plenty of people that want to invest in real estate. And to kind of focus on the folks that that want to invest in it versus trying to convert these people who just have their heart set on the other way. Yeah. And I think another one of the big lessons from that point was that you might have the best deal in the world, but if people don't know who you are and they don't trust you and you haven't taken the time to speak with them or get to know what their goals are, they're not going to invest with you. Right. Because I know me personally, I know what it takes to get a dollar out of my pocket. And it's a lot. Right. <laughs> I'm not just giving it to anybody. So if you're trying to sell me on something, in fact, me, I'm the type of person, if I'm walking down the street and somebody comes out and tries to sell me on something, I'm immediately turned off by that person. Right. right. So uh, he does give a good way on how to attract people who are interested in what you're doing and, uh, and essentially in an indirect way to where they come to you wanting to invest in you. And now you don't really have to sell them. You can just establish a relationship with them. But my favorite book, though, let me, let, let me just tell you my absolute favorite book is it's The One Thing by Gary Keller. If you have not read that book and you want to do something, like you want to achieve a large goal, whether that goal be financial freedom, whether that goal be like you want to climb Everest, I don't care. You need to buy that book because it teaches you how to focus and it, it teaches you how to chip away and take like one bite of the elephant at a time, right? Uh, and it's a very, he'll it, walk you through from a five-year plan back to what are you going to do? What's the one thing you need to do today to make sure that you reach your goals? And I have tabulated and highlighted that thing. And I, I read it all the time. And in fact, I have a, a journal right here with me on the front of it. It says the mountains are calling because my goal is to be, to have a lake house with a mountain view, right? That's what, that's my vision whenever I turn 40. And so I've already got it written down 
backing myself up to what I need to do today. And what I need to do today was, was sit on this podcast with you. So it works. It, it actually works because here I am. Right. So that is my absolute favorite book, but it's more along the lines of mindset than it is on uh, anything else. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great one. We've had a couple of folks recommend it. I read it after I think Paul Moore recommended it on the show. Yeah, it's um, good. Next one. What's your favorite quote? everything you want in life is just outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Right. I firmly believe that because like I said, the moment you do something outside of your comfort zone, it's now in your comfort zone. Your comfort zone has just gotten a little bit bigger. And you know, my daughter, she's a skateboarder and she, I watched her and she started out barely being able to get on the board. And then she, you know, started learning how to kick. It's just like riding a bike, doing a skateboard. The moment you've done it once, you can replicate it and you just get better and better and you add more tools to your toolbox and more skill sets. And now to me, whenever I was first getting started, buying a hundred unit apartment complex didn't even fit in like my brain capacity, (laughs) right? That's way too many zeros. And now we're vetting deals where a hundred units is like our minimum, right? So it's all about getting outside of your comfort zone. And uh, the moment that you reach something just outside your comfort zone, it's now inside of it. So I love that quote. Awesome. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Uh, so I, I just planned a trip. I bought me a, a, a van, not like a van life, but I bought <laughs> me a van. It kind of is like a van life, but I ain't living in a van. Yeah, no way. But um, it's it's a uh, one of those sprinter vans and it's got a queen size bed in the back. It's got like a kitchen in the middle room for the kiddos and the dogs. And I just planned our trip. We are going to Joshua Tree. We're going to Prescott, Sedona, the Grand Canyon, Zion, Vegas, the Sequoia National Forest and then back home in two weeks. We're not into it's a two week trip. So we are National Park hopping all over uh, the southeastern or southwestern portion of the country. And I just. Being out here in Bahrain, man, this place is, it's a flat piece of lime rock at the end of the day. Yeah. There is not very much nature in Bahrain. And for the past six months, I haven't walked on grass barefoot. Yeah. If that makes sense, like you think you take it for granted, but everything out <laughs> here is concrete surfaces. It's a beautiful country if you like buildings and, and, and culture, but I like nature and I'm ready to get away from people. And that's what I'm going to do when I get home. Awesome. Awesome. Ramsey, how can, uh, how can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, learn about your potential deals? All right. So our website is realfocus.org and that's real as in real estate focus.org. And then my uh, email, you can email me anytime is Ramsey, R-A-M-S-E-Y at realfocus.org. Awesome. Ramsey, thank you so much for joining the show. I, I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will too. And uh, I really enjoyed just getting to getting to know you a little bit better. So we'll definitely be uh, keeping track and, and learn, you know, following you on your journey. All right, Sterling. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at CrestworthCapital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.